Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Chapter 2, Part 3 and here we may profit by a pause in his soliloquy, to reflect how odd it was to see Orlando stretched there, on his elbow, on a June day, and to reflect that this fine fellow, with all his faculties about him, and a healthy body, witness cheeks and limbs, a man who never thought twice about heading a charge or fighting a duel, should be so subject to the lethargy of thought, and rendered so susceptible by it, that when it came to a question of poetry, or his own competence in it, he was as shy as a little girl behind her mother's cottage door. In our belief, Green's ridicule of his tragedy hurt him as much as the princess's ridicule of his love. But to return. Orlando went on thinking. He kept looking at the grass, and at the sky, and trying to bethink him what a true poet, who has his verses published in London, would say about them. Memory, meanwhile, whose habits have already been described, kept steady before his eyes the face of Nicholas Green, as if that sardonic, loose-lipped man, treacherous as he had proved himself, were the muse in person, and it was to him that Orlando must do homage. So Orlando, that summer morning, offered him a variety of phrases, some plain, others figured, and Nick Green kept shaking his head and sneering, and muttering something about Glore and Cicero, and the death of poetry in our time. At length, starting to his feet—it was now winter and very cold—Orlando swore one of the most remarkable oaths of his lifetime, for it bound him to a servitude than which none is stricter. "'I'll be blasted,' he said, "'if I ever write another word, or try to write another word, to please Nick Green or the Muse bad, good, or indifferent, I'll write, from this day forward, to please myself." And here he made as if he were tearing a whole budget of papers across, and tossing them in the face of that sneering, loose-lipped man. Upon which, as a cur ducks if you stoop to shy a stone at him, memory ducked her effigy of Nick Green out of sight, and substituted for it, nothing whatever. But Orlando, all the same, went on thinking. He had indeed much to think of. For when he tore the parchment across, he tore, in one rending, the scrolloping, emblazoned scroll which he had made out in his own favour in the solitude of his room, appointing himself, as the King appoints ambassadors, the first poet of his race, the first writer of his age, conferring eternal immortality upon his soul, and granting his body a grave among laurels and the intangible banners of a people's reverence perpetually. Eloquent as this all was, he now tore it up and threw it in the dustbin. Fame, he said, is like—and since there was no Nick Green to stop him, he went on to revel in images of which we will choose only one or two of the quietest. 
a braided coat which hampers the limbs, a jacket of silver which curbs the heart, a painted shield which covers a scarecrow, etc., etc. The pith of his phrases was that, while fame impedes and constricts, obscurity wraps about a man like a mist. Obscurity is dark, ample, and free. Obscurity lets the mind take its way unimpeded. Over the obscure man is poured the merciful suffusion of darkness. None knows where he goes or comes. He may seek the truth and speak it. He alone is free. He alone is truthful. He alone is at peace. And so he sank into a quiet mood under the oak-tree, the hardness of whose roots, exposed above the ground, seemed to him rather comfortable than otherwise. Sunk for a long time in profound thoughts as to the value of obscurity, and to the delight of having no name, but being like a wave which returns to the deep body of the sea, thinking how obscurity rids the mind of the irk of envy and spite, how it sets running in the veins the free waters of generosity and magnanimity, and allows giving and taking without thanks offered or praise given, which must have been the way of all great poets, he supposed, though his knowledge of Greek was not enough to bear him out. For, he thought, Shakespeare must have written like that, and the church-builders built like that, anonymously, needing no thanking or naming, but only their work in the daytime, and a little ale perhaps at night. What an admirable life this is, he thought, stretching his limbs out under the oak-tree. And why not enjoy it this very moment? The thought struck him like a bullet. Ambition dropped like a plummet. Rid of the heartburn of rejected love, and of vanity rebuked, and all the other stings and pricks which the nettle-bed of life had burnt upon him when ambitious of fame, but could no longer inflict upon one careless of glory. He opened his eyes, which had been wide open all the time, but had seen only thoughts, and saw, lying in the hollow beneath him, his house. There it lay, in the early sunshine of spring. It looked a town rather than a house, but a town built not hither and thither, as this man wished or that, but circumspectly, by a single architect with one idea in his head. Courts and buildings, grey, red, plum-colour, lay orderly and symmetrical. The courts were some of them oblong and some square. In this was a fountain, in that a statue. The buildings were some of them low, some pointed. Here was a chapel, there a belfry. Spaces of the greenest grass lay in between, and clumps of cedar-trees and beds of bright flowers. All were clasped, yet so well set out was it, that it seemed that every part had room to spread itself fittingly, by the roll of a massive wall, while smoke from innumerable chimneys curled perpetually into the air. This vast, yet ordered building, which could house a thousand men, and perhaps two thousand horses, was built, Orlando thought, by workmen whose names are unknown. Here have lived, for more centuries than I can count, the obscure generations of my own obscure family. Not one of these Richards, Johns, Annes, Elizabeths, has left a token of himself behind him, yet all, working together with their spades and their needles, their love-making and their child-bearing, have left this. 
never had the house looked more noble and humane. Why, then, had he wished to raise himself above them? For it seemed vain and arrogant in the extreme to try to better that anonymous work of creation, the labours of those vanished hands. Better was it to go unknown and leave behind you an arch, a potting-shed, a wall where peaches ripen, than to burn like a meteor and leave no dust. For after all, he said, kindling as he looked at the great house on the greensward below, the unknown lords and ladies who lived there never forgot to set aside something for those who will come after, for the roof that will leak, for the tree that will fall. There was always a warm corner for the old shepherd in the kitchen, always food for the hungry, always their goblets were polished, though they lay sick, and their windows were lit, though they lay dying. Lords though they were, they were content to go down into obscurity with the mole-catcher and the stonemason. Obscure noblemen, forgotten builders! Thus he apostrophised them with a warmth that entirely gainsaid such critics as called him cold, indifferent, slothful, the truth being that a quality often lies just on the other side of the wall from where we seek it. Thus he apostrophised his house and race, in terms of the most moving eloquence. But when it came to the peroration—and what is eloquence that lacks peroration?—he fumbled. He would have liked to have ended with a flourish, to the effect that he would follow in their footsteps and add another stone to their building. Since, however, the building already covered nine acres, to add even a single stone seemed superfluous. Could one mention furniture in a peroration? Could one speak of chairs and tables and mats to lie beside people's beds? For whatever the peroration wanted, that was what the house stood in need of. Leaving his speech unfinished for the moment, he strode downhill again, resolved henceforward to devote himself to the furnishing of the mansion. The news, that she was to attend him instantly, brought tears to the eyes of good old Mrs. Grimsditch now grown somewhat old. Together they perambulated the house. The towel-horse in the King's bedroom. And that was King Jamie, my lord, she said, hinting that it was many a day since a king had slept under their roof. But the odious Parliament days were over, and there was now a crown in England again. Lacked a leg. There were no stands to the ewers in the little closet leading into the waiting-room of the Duchess's page. Mr. Green had made a stain on the carpet with his nasty pipe-smoking, which she and Judy, for all their scrubbing, had never been able to wash out. Indeed, when Orlando came to reckon up the matter of furnishing with rosewood chairs and cedarwood cabinets, with silver basins, china bowls, and Persian carpets, every one of the three hundred and sixty-five bedrooms which the house contained, he saw that it would be no light one, and if some thousands of pounds of his estate remained over, these would do little more than hang a few galleries with tapestry, set the dining-hall with fine carved chairs, and provide mirrors of solid silver and chairs of the same material, for which he had an inordinate passion, for the furnishing of the royal bedchambers. He now set to work in earnest, as we can prove beyond a doubt if we look at his ledgers. Let us glance at an inventory of what he bought at this time, with the expenses totted up in the margin but these we omit. To fifty pairs of Spanish blankets, ditto curtains of crimson and white taffeta, the valence to them of white satin, 
embroidered with crimson and white silk. To seventy yellow satin chairs and sixty stools, suitable with their buckram covers to them all. To sixty-seven walnut-tree tables. To seventeen dozen boxes, containing each dozen, five dozen of Venice glasses. To one hundred and two mats, each thirty yards long. To ninety-seven cushions of crimson damask, laid with silver parchment lace and footstools of cloth of tissue and chairs suitable. To fifty branches for a dozen lights apiece. Already, it is an effect lists have upon us, we are beginning to yawn. But if we stop, it is only that the catalogue is tedious, not that it is finished. There are ninety-nine pages more of it, and the total sum dispersed ran into many thousands, that is to say millions of our money. And if his day was spent like this, at night again, Lord Orlando might be found reckoning out what it would cost to level a million molehills if the men were paid tenpence an hour, and again, how many hundredweight of nails at fivepence halfpenny a gill were needed to repair the fence round the park, which was fifteen miles in circumference, and so on and so on. The tale, we say, is tedious, for one cupboard is much like another, and one molehill not much different from a million. Some pleasant journeys it cost him, and some fine adventures. As, for instance, when he set a whole city of blind women near Bruges, to stitch hangings for a silver canopied bed, and the story of his adventure with a moor in Venice, of whom he bought, but only at the sword's point, his lacquered cabinet, might, in other hands, prove worth the telling. Nor did the work lack variety, for here would come, drawn by teams from Sussex, great trees to be sawn across and laid along the gallery for flooring, and then a chest from Persia, stuffed with wool and sawdust, from which, at last, he would take a single plate, or one topaz ring. At length, however, there was no room in the galleries for another table, no room on the tables for another cabinet, no room in the cabinet for another rose-bowl, no room in the bowl for another handful of potpourri, there was no room for anything anywhere, in short, the house was furnished. In the garden, snowdrops, crocuses, hyacinths, magnolias, roses, lilies, asters, the dahlia in all its varieties, pear-trees and apple-trees and cherry-trees and mulberry-trees, with an enormous quantity of rare and flowering shrubs, of trees evergreen and perennial, grew so thick on each other's roots that there was no plot of earth without its bloom, and no stretch of sward without its shade. In addition, he had imported wildfowl with gay plumage, and two Malay bears, the surliness of whose manners concealed, he was certain, trusty hearts. All was now ready, and when it was evening, and the innumerable silver sconces were lit, and the light airs which forever moved about the galleries, stirred the blue and green arras, so that it looked as if the huntsmen were riding and Daphne flying, when the silver shone, and lacquer glowed, and wood kindled, when the carved chairs held their arms out, and dolphins swam upon the walls with mermaids on their backs, when all this and much more than all this was complete and to his liking, Orlando walked through the house with his elk-hounds following, and felt content. He had matter now, he thought, to fill out his peroration. 
perhaps it would be well to begin the speech all over again. Yet, as he paraded the galleries, he felt that still something was lacking. Chairs and tables, however richly gilt and carved, sofas, resting on lion's paws with swan's necks curving under them, beds of even the softest swan's down, are not by themselves enough. People sitting in them, people lying in them, improve them amazingly. Accordingly, Orlando now began a series of very splendid entertainments to the nobility and gentry of the neighbourhood. The three hundred and sixty-five bedrooms were full for a month at a time. Guests jostled each other on the fifty-two staircases. Three hundred servants bustled about the pantries. Banquets took place almost nightly. Thus, in a very few years, Orlando had worn the nap off his velvet, and spent the half of his fortune, but he had earned the good opinion of his neighbours, held a score of offices in the county, and was annually presented with perhaps a dozen volumes dedicated to his lordship in rather fulsome terms by grateful poets. For, though he was careful not to consort with writers at that time, and kept himself always aloof from ladies of foreign blood, still he was excessively generous both to women and to poets, and both adored him. But when the feasting was at its height, and his guests were at their revels, he was apt to take himself off to his private room alone. There, when the door was shut, and he was certain of privacy, he would have out an old writing-book, stitched together with silk stolen from his mother's work-box, and labelled in a round schoolboy hand, The Oak Tree, a poem. In this he would write till midnight chimed, and long after. But, as he scratched out as many lines as he wrote in, the sum of them was often, at the end of the year, rather less than at the beginning, and it looked as if, in the process of writing, the poem would be completely unwritten. For it is for the historian of letters to remark that he had changed his style amazingly. His floridity was chastened, his abundance curbed, the age of prose was congealing those warm fountains. The very landscape outside was less stuck about with garlands, and the briars themselves were less thorned and intricate. Perhaps the senses were a little duller, and honey and cream less seductive to the palate. Also that the streets were better drained, and the houses better lit, had its effect upon the style, it cannot be doubted. One day he was adding a line or two, with enormous labour, to The Oak Tree, a poem when a shadow crossed the tail of his eye. It was no shadow, he soon saw, but the figure of a very tall lady in riding-hood and mantle, crossing the quadrangle on which his room looked out. As this was the most private of the courts, and the lady was a stranger to him, Orlando marvelled how she had got there. Three days later the same apparition appeared again, and on Wednesday noon appeared once more. This time Orlando was determined to follow her, nor apparently was she afraid to be found, for she slackened her steps as he came up and looked him full in the face. Any other woman thus caught in a lord's private grounds would have been afraid. Any other woman with that face, head-dress, and aspect would have thrown her mantilla across her shoulders to hide it. For this lady resembled nothing so much as a hare—a hare startled but obdurate 
a hare whose timidity is overcome by an immense and foolish audacity, a hare that sits upright and glowers at its pursuer with great bulging eyes, with ears erect but quivering, with nose pointed but twitching. This hare, moreover, was six feet high, and wore a headdress into the bargain, of some antiquated kind which made her look still taller. Thus confronted, she stared at Orlando, with a stare in which timidity and audacity were most strangely combined. First she asked him, with a proper but somewhat clumsy curtsy, to forgive her her intrusion. Then, rising to her full height again, which must have been something over six foot two, she went on to say, but with such a cackle of nervous laughter, so much tee-heeing and haw-hawing, that Orlando thought she must have escaped from a lunatic asylum, that she was the Archduchess Harriet Griselda of Finster Ahorn and Scandop Boom in the Romanian territory. She desired above all things to make his acquaintance, she said. She had taken lodging over a baker's shop at the park gates. She had seen his picture, and it was the image of a sister of hers who was, here she guffawed, long since dead. She was visiting the English court. The Queen was her cousin. The King was a very good fellow, but seldom went to bed sober. Here she tee-heed and haw-hawed again. In short, there was nothing for it but to ask her in and give her a glass of wine. Indoors her manners regained the hauteur natural to a Romanian archduchess, and had she not shown a knowledge of wines rare in a lady, and made some observations upon firearms and the customs of sportsmen in her country, which were sensible enough, the talk would have lacked spontaneity. Jumping to her feet at last, she announced that she would call the following day, swept another prodigious curtsy, and departed. The following day Orlando rode out. The next he turned his back, on the third he drew his curtain. On the fourth it rained and as he could not keep a lady in the wet, nor was altogether averse to company, he invited her in, and asked her opinion, whether a suit of armour, which belonged to an ancestor of his, was the work of Jacobi or of Top. He inclined to Top. She held another opinion, it matters very little which. But it is of some importance to the course of our story, that in illustrating her argument, which had to do with the working of the tie-pieces, the Archduchess Harriet took the golden shin-case, and fitted it to Orlando's leg. That he had a pair of the shapeliest legs that any nobleman has ever stood upright upon has already been said. Perhaps something in the way she fastened the ankle-buckle, or her stooping posture, or Orlando's long seclusion, or the natural sympathy which is between the sexes, or the burgundy, or the fire, any of these causes may have been to blame, for certainly blame there is on one side or another, when a nobleman of Orlando's breeding, entertaining a lady in his house, and she his elder by many years, with a face a yard long and staring eyes, dressed somewhat ridiculously too, in a mantle and riding-cloak, though the season was warm, blame there is when such a nobleman is so suddenly and violently overcome by passion of some sort, that he has to leave the room. But what sort of passion, it may well be asked, could this be? And the answer is as double-faced as love herself. For love—but leaving love out of the argument for a moment, the actual event was this. 
When the Archduchess Harriet Griselda stooped to fasten the buckle, Orlando heard, suddenly and unaccountably, far off, the beating of love's wings. The distant stir of that soft plumage roused in him a thousand memories of rushing waters, of loveliness in the snow and faithlessness in the flood, and the sound came nearer, and he blushed and trembled, and he was moved as he had never thought to be moved again, and he was ready to raise his hands and let the bird of beauty alight on his shoulders, when—horror! A creaking sound like that the crows make tumbling over the trees began to reverberate. The air seemed dark with coarse black wings, voices croaked, bits of straw, twigs and feathers dropped, and there pitched down upon his shoulders the heaviest and foulest of the birds, which is the vulture. Thus he rushed from the room, and sent the footman to see the Archduchess Harriet to her carriage. For love, to which we may now return, has two faces, one white, the other black, two bodies, one smooth, the other hairy. It has two hands, two feet, two nails, two indeed of every member, and each one is the exact opposite of the other. Yet so strictly are they joined together that you cannot separate them. In this case Orlando's love began her flight towards him, with her white face turned, and her smooth and lovely body outwards. Nearer and nearer she came, wafting before her airs of pure delight. All of a sudden, at the sight of the Archduchess, presumably, she wheeled about, turned the other way round, showed herself black, hairy, brutish, and it was lust the vulture, not love the bird of paradise, that flopped foully and disgustingly upon his shoulders. Hence he ran, hence he fetched the footman. But the harpy is not so easily banished as all that. Not only did the Archduchess continue to lodge at the baker's, but Orlando was haunted every day and night by phantoms of the foulest kind. Vainly, it seemed, had he furnished his house with silver and hung the walls with arras, when at any moment a dung-bedraggled fowl could settle upon his writing-table. There she was, flopping about among the chairs. He saw her waddling ungracefully across the galleries. Now she perched, top-heavy, upon a fire-screen. When he chased her out, back she came and pecked at the glass till she broke it. Thus realising that his home was uninhabitable, and that steps must be taken to end the matter instantly, he did what any other young man would have done in his place, and asked King Charles to send him as ambassador extraordinary to Constantinople. The King was walking in Whitehall. Nell Gwynne was on his arm. She was pelting him with hazelnuts. "'Twas a thousand pities," that amorous lady sighed, "'that such a pair of legs should leave the country." Howbeit the fates were hard, she could do no more than toss one kiss over her shoulder, before Orlando sailed. End of section 6section 7 of orlando by virginia wolf this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by corrie samuel chapter 3 part 1 
It is indeed highly unfortunate, and much to be regretted, that at this stage of Orlando's career, when he played a most important part in the public life of his country, we have least information to go upon. We know that he discharged his duties to admiration, witness his bath and his dukedom. We know that he had a finger in some of the most delicate negotiations between King Charles and the Turks. To that, treaties in the vault of the Record Office bear testimony. But the revolution which broke out during his period of office, and the fire which followed, have so damaged or destroyed all those papers from which any trustworthy record could be drawn, that what we can give is lamentably incomplete. Often the paper was scorched a deep brown in the middle of the most important sentence. Just when we thought to elucidate a secret that has puzzled historians for a hundred years, there was a hole in the manuscript big enough to put your finger through. We have done our best to piece out a meagre summary from the charred fragments that remain, but often it has been necessary to speculate, to surmise, and even to use the imagination. Orlando's day was passed, it would seem, somewhat in this fashion. About seven he would rise, wrap himself in a long Turkish cloak, light a cheroot, and lean his elbows on the parapet. Thus he would stand gazing at the city beneath him, apparently entranced. At this hour the mist would lie so thick, that the domes of Santa Sophia and the rest would seem to be afloat. Gradually the mist would uncover them. The bubbles would be seen to be firmly fixed. There would be the river. There the Galata Bridge. There the green-turbaned pilgrims without eyes or noses, begging alms. There the pariah-dogs picking up offal. There the shawled women. There the innumerable donkeys, there men on horses carrying long poles. Soon the whole town would be astir with the cracking of whips, the beating of gongs, cryings to prayer, lashing of mules, and rattle of brass-bound wheels, while sour odours, made from bread fermenting and incense and spice, rose even to the heights of Pera itself and seemed the very breath of the strident, multicoloured, and barbaric population. Nothing, he reflected, gazing at the view which was now sparkling in the sun, could well be less like the counties of Surrey and Kent, or the towns of London and Tunbridge Wells. To the right and left rose in bald and stony prominence the inhospitable Asian mountains, to which the arid castle of a robber-chief or two might hang. But parsonage there was none, nor manor-house, nor cottage, nor oak, elm, violet, ivy, or wild eglantine. There were no hedges for ferns to grow on, and no fields for sheep to graze. The houses were white as eggshells and as bald. That he, who was English root and fibre, should yet exult to the depths of his heart in this wild panorama, and gaze and gaze at those passes and far heights, planning journeys there alone on foot, where only the goat and shepherd had gone before, should feel a passion of affection for the bright, unseasonable flowers, love the unkempt pariah-dogs beyond even his elk-hounds at home, and snuff the acrid, sharp smell of the streets eagerly into his nostrils, surprised him. He wondered if, in the season of the Crusades, one of his ancestors had taken up with a Circassian peasant woman, thought it possible, 
fancied a certain darkness in his complexion, and, going indoors again, withdrew to his bath. An hour later, properly scented, curled and anointed, he would receive visits from secretaries and other high officials, carrying, one after another, red boxes which yielded only to his own golden key. Within were papers of the highest importance, of which only fragments, here a flourish, there a seal firmly attached to a piece of burnt silk, now remain. Of their contents, then, we cannot speak, but can only testify that Orlando was kept busy, what with his wax and seals, his various coloured ribbons which had to be diversely attached, his engrossing of titles and making of flourishes round capital letters, till luncheon came, a splendid meal of perhaps thirty courses. After luncheon, lackeys announced that his coach and six was at the door, and he went, preceded by purple janissaries running on foot and waving great ostrich feather fans above their heads, to call upon the other ambassadors and dignitaries of state. The ceremony was always the same. On reaching the courtyard, the janissaries struck with their fans upon the main portal, which immediately flew open revealing a large chamber, splendidly furnished. Here were seated two figures, generally of the opposite sexes. Profound bows and curtsies were exchanged. In the first room it was permissible only to mention the weather. Having said that it was fine or wet, hot or cold, the ambassador then passed on to the next chamber, where again two figures rose to greet him. Here it was only permissible to compare Constantinople as a place of residence with London, and the ambassador naturally said that he preferred Constantinople, and his hosts naturally said, though they had not seen it, that they preferred London. In the next chamber King Charles's and the Sultan's healths had to be discussed at some length. In the next were discussed the ambassador's health and that of his host's wife, but more briefly. In the next the ambassador complimented his host upon his furniture, and the host complimented the ambassador upon his dress. In the next sweetmeats were offered, the host deploring their badness, the ambassador extolling their goodness. The ceremony ended at length with the smoking of a hookah and the drinking of a glass of coffee, but though the motions of smoking and drinking were gone through punctiliously, there was neither tobacco in the pipe nor coffee in the glass, as, had either smoke or drink been real, the human frame would have sunk beneath the surfeit. For no sooner had the ambassador dispatched one such visit than another had to be undertaken. The same ceremonies were gone through in precisely the same order, six or seven times over at the houses of the other great officials, so that it was often late at night before the ambassador reached home. Though Orlando performed these tasks to admiration, and never denied that they are, perhaps, the most important part of a diplomatist's duties, he was undoubtedly fatigued by them, and often depressed to such a pitch of gloom that he preferred to take his dinner alone with his dogs. To them, indeed, he might be heard talking in his own tongue. And sometimes, it is said, he would pass out of his own gates late at night, so disguised that the centuries did not know him. Then he would mingle with the crowd on the Galata Bridge, or stroll through the bazaars, or throw aside his shoes and join the worshippers in the mosques. Once, when it was given out that he was ill of a fever, 
shepherds, bringing their goats to market, reported that they had met an English lord on the mountain-top, and heard him praying to his god. This was thought to be Orlando himself, and his prayer was, no doubt, a poem said aloud, for it was known that he still carried about with him, in the bosom of his cloak, a much-scored manuscript, and servants, listening at the door, heard the ambassador chanting something in an odd, sing-song voice when he was alone. It is with fragments such as these that we must do our best to make up a picture of Orlando's life and character at this time. There exist, even to this day, rumours, legends, anecdotes of a floating and unauthenticated kind about Orlando's life in Constantinople we have quoted but a few of them, which go to prove that he possessed, now that he was in the prime of life, the power to stir the fancy and rivet the eye, which will keep a memory green, long after all that more durable qualities can do to preserve it is forgotten. The power is a mysterious one, compounded of beauty, birth, and some rarer gift, which we may call glamour and have done with it. A million candles, as Sasha had said, burnt in him without his being at the trouble of lighting a single one. He moved like a stag, without any need to think about his legs. He spoke in his ordinary voice, and echo beat a silver gong. Hence rumours gathered round him. He became the adored of many women and some men. It was not necessary that they should speak to him, or even that they should see him. They conjured up before them especially when the scenery was romantic, or the sun was setting, the figure of a noble gentleman in silk stockings. Upon the poor and uneducated he had the same power as upon the rich. Shepherds, gypsies, donkey-drivers, still sing songs about the English lord, who dropped his emeralds in the well, which undoubtedly refer to Orlando, who once, it seems, tore his jewels from him in a moment of rage or intoxication, and flung them in a fountain, whence they were fished by a page-boy. But this romantic power, it is well known, is often associated with a nature of extreme reserve. Orlando seems to have made no friends. As far as is known he formed no attachments. A certain great lady came all the way from England in order to be near him, and pestered him with her attentions, but he continued to discharge his duties so indefatigably that he had not been ambassador at the Horn for more than two years and a half, before King Charles signified his intention of raising him to the highest rank in the peerage. The envious said that this was Nelgwyn's tribute to the memory of a leg. But, as she had seen him once only, and was then busily engaged in pelting her royal master with nutshells, it is likely that it was his merits that won him his dukedom, not his calves. Here we must pause, for we have reached a moment of great significance in his career. For the conferring of the dukedom was the occasion of a very famous, and indeed much disputed, incident, which we must now describe, picking our way among burnt papers and little bits of tape as best we may. It was at the end of the great fast of Ramadan that the order of the bath and the patent of nobility arrived in a frigate, commanded by Sir Adrian Scrope and Orlando made this the occasion for an entertainment more splendid than any that has been known before or since in Constantinople. The night was fine, the crowd immense, and the windows of the embassy brilliantly illuminated. 
Again, details are lacking, for the fire had its way with all such records, and has left only tantalising fragments, which leave the most important points obscure. From the diary of John Fenner Brigg, however, an English naval officer, who was among the guests, we gather that people of all nationalities were packed like herrings in a barrel in the courtyard. The crowd pressed so unpleasantly close that Brigg soon climbed into a Judas-tree, the better to observe the proceedings. The rumour had got about among the natives, and here is additional proof of Orlando's mysterious power over the imagination, that some kind of miracle was to be performed. Thus, writes Brigg, but his manuscript is full of burns and holes, some sentences being quite illegible. When the rockets began to soar into the air, there was considerable uneasiness among us, lest the native population should be seized, blank, fraught with unpleasant consequences to all, blank. English ladies in the company, I own that my hand went to my cutlass. Happily, he continues, in his somewhat long-winded style, these fears seemed for the moment groundless, and, observing the demeanour of the natives, blank, I came to the conclusion that this demonstration of our skill in the art of pyrotechny was valuable, if only because it impressed upon them, blank, the superiority of the British. Blank. Indeed, the sight was one of indescribable magnificence. I found myself alternately praising the Lord that he had permitted, blank, and wishing that my poor dear mother, blank. By the ambassador's orders, the long windows, which are so imposing a feature of Eastern architecture, for though ignorant in many ways, blank, were thrown wide, and within we could see a tableau vivant, or theatrical display, in which English ladies and gentlemen, blank, represented a mask the work of one, blank. The words were inaudible, but the sight of so many of our countrymen and women, dressed with the highest elegance and distinction, blank, moved me to emotions of which I am certainly not ashamed, though unable, blank. I was intent upon observing the astonishing conduct of Lady, blank, which was of a nature to fasten the eyes of all upon her, and to bring discredit upon her sex and country, when— Unfortunately, a branch of the Judas tree broke, Lieutenant Brake fell to the ground, and the rest of the entry records only his gratitude to Providence, who plays a very large part in the diary, and the exact nature of his injuries. Happily, Miss Penelope Hartop, daughter of the general of that name, saw the scene from inside, and carries on the tale in a letter, much defaced too, which ultimately reached a female friend at Tunbridge Wells. Miss Penelope was no less lavish in her enthusiasm than the gallant officer. "'Ravishing!' she exclaims ten times on one page. "'Wondrous!' Blank. "'Utterly beyond description!' Blank. "'Gold plate!' Blank. "'Candelabras!' Blank. Negroes in plush breeches, blank. Pyramids of ice, blank. Fountains of Negus, blank. Jellies made to represent His Majesty's ships, blank. Swans made to represent water lilies, blank. Birds in golden cages, blank. Gentlemen in slashed crimson velvet, blank. Ladies' headdresses at least six feet high, blank. Musical boxes, blank. Mr. Peregrine said I looked quite lovely, which I only repeat to you, my dearest, because I know—blank. 
Oh, how I longed for you all! Blank. Surpassing anything we have seen at the Pantiles. Blank. Oceans to drink. Blank. Some gentlemen overcome. Blank. Lady Betty ravishing. Blank. Lady Bonham made the unfortunate mistake of sitting down without a chair beneath her. Blank. Gentlemen all very gallant. Blank. Wished a thousand times for you and dearest Betsy. Blank. But the sight of all others, the cynosure of all eyes. Blank. As all admit it, for none could be so vile as to deny it, was the ambassador himself. Such a leg! Such a countenance! Such princely manners! To see him come into the room! To see him go out again! And something interesting in the expression, which makes one feel, one scarcely knows why, that he has suffered. They say a lady was the cause of it. The heartless monster! How can one of our reputed tender sex have had the effrontery? He is unmarried, and half the ladies in the place are wild for love of him. Blank. A thousand thousand kisses to Tom, Jerry, Peter, and dearest Mew. Presumably her cat. From the Gazette of the time we gather that, as the clock struck twelve, the ambassador appeared on the centre balcony, which was hung with priceless rugs. Six Turks of the Imperial Bodyguard, each over six feet in height, held torches to his right and left. Rockets rose into the air at his appearance, and a great shout went up from the people, which the ambassador acknowledged, bowing deeply, and speaking a few words of thanks in the Turkish language, which it was one of his accomplishments to speak with fluency. Next, Sir Adrian Scrope, in the full dress of a British admiral, advanced. The ambassador knelt on one knee. The admiral placed the collar of the most noble order of the bath round his neck, then pinned the star to his breast. After which, another gentleman of the diplomatic corps, advancing in a stately manner, placed on his shoulders the ducal robes, and handed him on a crimson cushion the ducal coronet. At length, with a gesture of extraordinary majesty and grace, first bowing profoundly, then raising himself proudly erect, Orlando took the golden circlet of strawberry leaves and placed it, with a gesture which none that saw it ever forgot, upon his brows. It was at this point that the first disturbance began. Either the people had expected a miracle—some say a shower of gold was prophesied to fall from the skies—which did not happen, or this was the signal chosen for the attack to begin. Nobody seems to know. But as the coronet settled on Orlando's brows, a great uproar rose. Bells began ringing. The harsh cries of the prophets were heard above the shouts of the people. Many Turks fell flat to the ground and touched the earth with their foreheads. A door burst open. The natives pressed into the banqueting-rooms. Women shrieked. A certain lady, who was said to be dying for love of Orlando, seized a candelabra and dashed it to the ground. What might not have happened, had it not been for the presence of Sir Adrian Scrope and a squad of British blue-jackets, nobody can say. But the Admiral ordered the bugles to be sounded, a hundred blue-jackets stood instantly at attention, the disorder was quelled, and quiet, at least for the time being, fell upon the scene. So far, we are on the firm, if rather narrow, ground of ascertained truth. 
but nobody has ever known exactly what took place later that night. The testimony of the sentries and others seems, however, to prove that the embassy was empty of company, and shut up for the night in the usual way by 2 a.m. The ambassador was seen to go to his room, still wearing the insignia of his rank, and shut the door. Some say he locked it, which was against his custom. Others maintain that they heard music of a rustic kind, such as shepherds play, later that night in the courtyard under the ambassador's window. A washerwoman, who was kept awake by toothache, said that she saw a man's figure, wrapped in a cloak or dressing-gown, come out upon the balcony. Then, she said, a woman, much muffled, but apparently of the peasant class, was drawn up by means of a rope which the man let down to her, onto the balcony. There, the washerwoman said, they embraced passionately, like lovers, and went into the room together, drawing the curtains so that no more could be seen. Next morning the Duke, as we must now call him, was found by his secretaries sunk in profound slumber, amid bedclothes that were much tumbled. The room was in some disorder, his coronet having rolled on the floor, and his cloak and garter being flung all of a heap on a chair. The table was littered with papers. No suspicion was felt at first, as the fatigues of the night had been great. But when afternoon came and he still slept, a doctor was summoned. He applied remedies which had been used on the previous occasion—plasters, nettles, emetics, etc.—but without success. Orlando slept on. His secretaries then thought it their duty to examine the papers on the table. Many were scribbled over with poetry, in which frequent mention was made of an oak-tree. There were also various state papers, and others of a private nature, concerning the management of his estates in England. But at length they came upon a document of far greater significance. It was nothing less, indeed, than a deed of marriage, drawn up, signed and witnessed, between his lordship, Orlando, Knight of the Garter, etc., 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 and Rosina Pepita, a dancer, father unknown, but reputed a gypsy, mother also unknown, but reputed a seller of old iron in the market-place over against the Galata Bridge. The secretaries looked at each other in dismay. And still Orlando slept. Morning and evening they watched him, but, save that his breathing was regular and his cheeks still flushed their habitual deep rose, he gave no sign of life. Whatever science or ingenuity could do to waken him they did, but still he slept. On the seventh day of his trance, Thursday, May the tenth, the first shot was fired of that terrible and bloody insurrection of which Lieutenant Brigg had detected the first symptoms. The Turks rose against the Sultan, set fire to the town, and put every foreigner they could find, either to the sword or to the bastinado. A few English managed to escape, but, as might have been expected, the gentlemen of the British Embassy preferred to die in defence of their red boxes, or, in extreme cases, to swallow bunches of keys, rather than let them fall into the hands of the infidel. The rioters broke into Orlando's room, but seeing him stretched to all appearances dead, they left him untouched, and only robbed him of his coronet and the robes of the garter. And now again obscurity descends, and would indeed that it were deeper. Would, we almost have it in our hearts to exclaim, 
that it was so deep that we could see nothing whatever through its opacity. Would that we might here take the pen and write, Venus, to our work. Would that we might spare the reader what is to come, and say to him in so many words, Orlando died and was buried. But here, alas, truth, candour, and honesty, the austere gods who keep watch and ward by the ink-pot of the biographer, cry no. Putting their silver trumpets to their lips, they demand in one blast, Truth! And again they cry, Truth! And sounding yet a third time in concert, they peal forth, The truth and nothing but the truth! At which, heaven be praised, for it affords us a breathing space, the doors gently open, as if a breath of the gentlest and holiest zephyr had wafted them apart, and three figures enter. First comes Our Lady of Purity, whose brows are bound with fillets of the whitest lamb's wool, whose hair is as an avalanche of the driven snow, and in whose hand reposes the white quill of a virgin goose. Following her, but with a statelier step, comes Our Lady of Chastity, on whose brow is set, like a turret of burning but unwasting fire, a diadem of icicles. Her eyes are pure stars, and her fingers, if they touch you, freeze you to the bone. Close behind her, sheltering indeed in the shadow of her more stately sisters, comes Our Lady of Modesty, frailest and fairest of the three, whose face is only shown as the young moon shows when it is thin and sickle-shaped and half-hidden among clouds. Each advances towards the centre of the room where Orlando still lies sleeping, and with gestures at once appealing and commanding, our Lady of Purity speaks first. I am the guardian of the sleeping fawn, the snow is dear to me, and the moon rising, and the silver sea. With my robes I cover the speckled hen's eggs, and the brindled sea-shell, I cover vice and poverty. On all things frail, or dark, or doubtful, my veil descends. Wherefore, speak not, reveal not, spare, O oh, spare! Here the trumpets peal forth. Purity, avaunt! Be gone, purity! Then Our Lady of Chastity speaks. I am she whose touch freezes, and whose glance turns to stone. I have stayed the star in its dancing, and the wave as it falls. The highest Alps are my dwelling-place, and when I walk, the lightnings flash in my hair. Where my eyes fall, they kill. Rather than let Orlando wake, I will freeze him to the bone. Spare! Oh, spare! Here the trumpets peal forth. Chastity! Avaunt! Be gone, chastity! Then Our Lady of Modesty speaks, so low that one can hardly hear. I am she that men call Modesty. Virgin I am, and ever shall be. Not for me the fruitful fields and the fertile vineyard. Increase is odious to me, and when the apples burgeon, or the flocks breed, I run, I run. I let my mantle fall. My hair covers my eyes. I do not see. Spare, oh, spare! Again the trumpets peal forth. Modesty, avaunt! Be gone, modesty! With gestures of grief and lamentation, 
the three sisters now join hands and dance slowly, tossing their veils and singing as they go. Truth come not out from your horrid den, hide deeper fearful truth, for you flaunt in the brutal gaze of the sun, things that were better unknown and undone. You unveil the shameful, the dark you make clear. Hide, hide, hide! Here they make as if to cover Orlando with their draperies. The trumpets, meanwhile, still blare forth. The truth, and nothing but the truth! At this the sisters try to cast their veils over the mouths of the trumpets so as to muffle them, but in vain, for now all the trumpets blare forth together. Horrid sisters, go! The sisters become distracted and wail in unison, still circling and flinging their veils up and down. It has not always been so. But men want us no longer. The women detest us. We go, we go. I, Purity says this, to the hen-roost. I, Chastity says this, to the still unravished heights of Surrey. I, Modesty says this, to any cosy nook where there are ivy and curtains in plenty. For there, not here, all speak together, joining hands, and making gestures of farewell and despair towards the bed where Orlando lies sleeping. Dwell still in nest and boudoir, office and law-court, those who love us, those who honour us, virgins and city-men, lawyers and doctors, those who prohibit, those who deny, those who reverence without knowing why, those who praise without understanding, the still very numerous, heaven be praised, tribe of the respectable, who prefer to see not, desire to know not, love the darkness. Those still worship us, and with reason, for we have given them wealth, prosperity, comfort, ease. To them we go, you we leave. Come, sisters, come, this is no place for us here." They retire in haste, waving their draperies over their heads, as if to shut out something that they dare not look upon, and close the door behind them. We are, therefore, now left entirely alone in the room, with the sleeping Orlando and the trumpeters. The trumpeters, ranging themselves side by side in order, blow one terrific blast. The truth! At which Orlando woke. He stretched himself. He rose. He stood upright in complete nakedness before us. And while the trumpets pealed, truth, truth, truth! We have no choice left but confess. He was a woman. End of section 7、section、eight、of Orlando by Virginia Woolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Chapter 3, Part 2 the sound of the trumpets died away, and Orlando stood stark naked. No human being, since the world began, has ever looked more ravishing. 
his form combined in one the strength of a man and a woman's grace. As he stood there, the silver trumpets prolonged their note, as if reluctant to leave the lovely sight which their blast had called forth, and chastity, purity, and modesty, inspired no doubt by curiosity, peeped in at the door, and threw a garment like a towel at the naked form, which, unfortunately, fell short by several inches. Orlando looked himself up and down in a long looking-glass, without showing any signs of discomposure, and went, presumably, to his bath. We may take advantage of this pause in the narrative to make certain statements. Orlando had become a woman, there is no denying it. But in every other respect Orlando remained precisely as he had been. The change of sex, although it altered their future, did nothing whatever to alter their identity. Their faces remained, as their portraits prove, practically the same. His memory—but in future we must, for convention's sake, say her, for his, and she for he—her memory, then, went back through all the events of her past life, without encountering any obstacle. Some slight haziness there may have been, as if a few dark drops had fallen into the clear pool of memory. Certain things had become a little dimmed, but that was all. The change seemed to have been accomplished painlessly and completely, and in such a way that Orlando herself showed no surprise at it. Many people, taking this into account, and holding that such a change of sex is against nature, have been at great pains to prove, one, that Orlando had always been a woman, two, that Orlando is at this moment a man. Let biologists and psychologists determine. It is enough for us to state the simple fact. Orlando was a man till the age of thirty, when he became a woman, and has remained so ever since. But let other pens treat of sex and sexuality. We quit such odious subjects as soon as we can. Orlando had now washed and dressed herself in those Turkish coats and trousers which can be worn indifferently by either sex, and was forced to consider her position. That it was precarious and embarrassing in the extreme must be the first thought of every reader who has followed her story with sympathy. Young, noble, beautiful, she had woken to find herself in a position than which we can conceive none more delicate for a young lady of rank. We should not have blamed her had she rung the bell, screamed, or fainted. But Orlando showed no such signs of perturbation. All her actions were deliberate in the extreme, and might indeed have been thought to show tokens of premeditation. First, she carefully examined the papers on the table, took such as seemed to be written in poetry, and secreted them in her bosom. Next, she called her Salucci hound, which had never left her bed all these days, though half famished with hunger, fed and combed him, then stuck a pair of pistols in her belt, finally wound about her person several strings of emeralds and pearls of the finest orient which had formed part of her ambassadorial wardrobe. This done, she leant out of the window, gave one low whistle, and descended the shattered and blood-stained staircase now strewn with the litter of waste-paper baskets, treaties, dispatches, seals, sealing-wax, etc., and so entered the courtyard. There, in the shadow of a giant fig-tree, 
waited an old gypsy on a donkey. He led another by the bridle. Orlando swung her leg over it, and thus, attended by a lean dog, riding a donkey, in company of a gypsy, the ambassador of Great Britain at the court of the Sultan, left Constantinople. They rode for several days and nights, and met with a variety of adventures, some at the hands of men, some at the hands of nature, in all of which Orlando acquitted herself with courage. Within a week they reached the high ground outside Brusa, which was then the chief camping-ground of the gypsy tribe to which Orlando had allied herself. Often she had looked at those mountains from her balcony at the embassy, often had longed to be there, and to find oneself where one has longed to be always, to a reflective mind, gives food for thought. For some time, however, she was too well pleased with the change to spoil it by thinking. The pleasure of having no documents to seal or sign, no flourishes to make, no calls to pay, was enough. The gypsies followed the grass. When it was grazed down, on they moved again. She washed in streams if she washed at all. No boxes, red, blue, or green, were presented to her. There was not a key, let alone a golden key, in the whole camp. As for visiting, the word was unknown. She milked the goats, she collected brushwood, she stole a hen's egg now and then, but always put a coin or a pearl in place of it. She herded cattle, she stripped vines, she trod the grape, she filled the goat-skin and drank from it. And when she remembered how, at about this time of day, she should have been making the motions of drinking and smoking, over an empty coffee-cup and a pipe which lacked tobacco, she laughed aloud cut herself another hunch of bread, and begged for a puff from old Rustam's pipe, filled though it was with cow-dung. The gypsies, with whom it is obvious that she must have been in secret communication before the revolution, seemed to have looked upon her as one of themselves, which is always the highest compliment a people can pay, and her dark hair and dark complexion bore out the belief that she was, by birth, one of them and had been snatched by an English duke from a nut-tree when she was a baby, and taken to that barbarous land where people live in houses because they are too feeble and diseased to stand the open air. Thus, though in many ways inferior to them, they were willing to help her to become more like them, taught her their arts of cheese-making and basket-weaving, their science of stealing and bird-snaring, and were even prepared to consider letting her marry among them. But Orlando had contracted in England some of the customs, or diseases, whatever you choose to consider them, which cannot, it seems, be expelled. One evening, when they were all sitting round the campfire, and the sunset was blazing over the Thessalian hills, Orlando exclaimed, "'How good to eat!' The gypsies have no word for beautiful. This is the nearest. All the young men and women burst out laughing uproariously. The sky! Good to eat, indeed!" The elders, however, who had seen more of foreigners than they had, became suspicious. They noticed that Orlando often sat for whole hours doing nothing whatever, except look here and then there. They would come upon her on some hilltop staring straight in front of her, no matter whether the goats were grazing or straying. They began to suspect that she had other beliefs than their own and the older men and women thought it probable that she had fallen into the clutches of the vilest and cruellest among all the gods, 
which is nature. Nor were they far wrong. The English disease, a love of nature, was inborn in her, and here, where nature was so much larger and more powerful than in England, she fell into its hands as she had never done before. The malady is too well known, and has been, alas, too well described, to need describing afresh, save very briefly. There were mountains, there were valleys, there were streams. She climbed the mountains, roamed the valleys, sat on the banks of the streams. She likened the hills to ramparts, to the breasts of doves and the flanks of kine. She compared the flowers to enamel, and the turf to turkey-rugs worn thin. Trees were withered hags, and sheep were grey boulders. Everything, in fact, was something else. She found the tarn on the mountain-top, and almost threw herself in to seek the wisdom she thought lay hid there. And when, from the mountain-top, she beheld far off, across the sea of Marmara, the plains of Greece, and made out—her eyes were admirable—the Acropolis, with a white streak or two which must, she thought, be the Parthenon, her soul expanded with her eyeballs, and she prayed that she might share the majesty of the hills, know the serenity of the plains, etc., etc., as all such believers do. Then, looking down, the red hyacinth, the purple iris, wrought her to cry out in ecstasy at the goodness, the beauty of nature. Raising her eyes again, she beheld the eagle soaring, and imagined its raptures and made them her own. Returning home, she saluted each star, each peak, and each watch-fire, as if they signalled to her alone. And at last, when she flung herself upon her mat in the gypsy's tent, she could not help bursting out again, How good to eat! How good to eat! For it is a curious fact that, though human beings have such imperfect means of communication, that they can only say, Good to eat, when they mean beautiful, and the other way about, they will yet endure ridicule and misunderstanding, rather than keep any experience to themselves. All the young gypsies laughed. But Rustam el Sadi, the old man who had brought Orlando out of Constantinople on his donkey, sat silent. He had a nose like a scimitar, his cheeks were furrowed as if from the age-long descent of iron hail, he was brown and keen-eyed, and as he sat tugging at his hookah, he observed Orlando narrowly. He had the deepest suspicion that her god was nature. One day he found her in tears. Interpreting this to mean that her god had punished her, he told her that he was not surprised. He showed her the fingers of his left hand, withered by the frost. He showed her his right foot, crushed where a rock had fallen. This, he said, was what her god did to men. When she said, But so beautiful! Using the English word, he shook his head, and when she repeated it he was angry. He saw that she did not believe what he believed, and that was enough, wise and ancient as he was, to enrage him. This difference of opinion disturbed Orlando, who had been perfectly happy until now. She began to think, was nature beautiful or cruel? Then she asked herself what this beauty was, whether it was in things themselves, or only in herself. So she went on to the nature of reality, which led her to truth, which in its turn led to love, friendship, 
poetry, as in the days on the high mound at home, which meditations, since she could impart no word of them, made her long, as she had never longed before, for pen and ink. "'Oh, if only I could write!' she cried, for she had the odd conceit of those who write, that words written are shared. She had no ink, and but little paper. But she made ink from berries and wine, and finding a few margins and blank spaces in the manuscript of the oak-tree, managed, by writing a kind of shorthand, to describe the scenery in a long, blank-verse poem, and to carry on a dialogue with herself about this beauty and truth concisely enough. This kept her extremely happy for hours on end. But the gypsies became suspicious. First they noticed that she was less adept than before at milking and cheese-making. Next she often hesitated before replying. And once a gypsy boy who had been asleep woke in a terror feeling her eyes upon him. Sometimes this constraint would be felt by the whole tribe, numbering some dozens of grown men and women. It sprang from the sense they had, and their senses are very sharp and much in advance of their vocabulary, that whatever they were doing crumbled like ashes in their hands. An old woman making a basket, a boy skinning a sheep, would be singing or crooning contentedly at their work, when Orlando would come into the camp, fling herself down by the fire and gaze into the flames. She need not even look at them, and yet they felt, here is someone who doubts. We make a rough and ready translation from the gypsy language. Here is someone who does not do the thing for the sake of doing, nor looks for looking's sake. Here is someone who believes neither in sheepskin nor basket, but sees—here they looked apprehensively about the tent—something else. Then a vague but most unpleasant feeling would begin to work in the boy and in the old woman. They broke their withies. They cut their fingers. A great rage filled them. They wished Orlando would leave the tent and never come near them again. Yet she was of a cheerful and willing disposition, they owned, and one of her pearls was enough to buy the finest herd of goats in Brusa. Slowly she began to feel that there was some difference between her and the gypsies, which made her hesitate sometimes to marry and settle down among them for ever. At first she tried to account for it by saying that she came of an ancient and civilised race, whereas these gypsies were an ignorant people, not much better than savages. One night, when they were questioning her about England, she could not help with some pride describing the house where she was born, how it had three hundred and sixty-five bedrooms, and had been in the possession of her family for four or five hundred years. Her ancestors were earls, or even dukes, she added. At this she noticed again that the gypsies were uneasy, but not angry as before when she had praised the beauty of nature. Now they were courteous, but concerned, as people of fine breeding are, when a stranger has been made to reveal his low birth or poverty. Rustum followed her out of the tent alone, and said that she need not mind if her father were a duke, and possessed all the bedrooms and furniture that she described. They would none of them think the worse of her for that. Then she was seized with a shame that she had never felt before. It was clear that Rustum and the other gypsies thought a descent of four or five hundred years only the meanest possible. Their own families went back at least two or three thousand years. 
to the gypsy whose ancestors had built the pyramids centuries before Christ was born, the genealogy of Howards and Plantagenets was no better and no worse than that of the Smiths and the Joneses. Both were negligible. Moreover, where the shepherd-boy had a lineage of such antiquity, there was nothing specially memorable or desirable in ancient birth. Vagabonds and beggars all shared it. And then, though he was too courteous to speak openly, it was clear that the gypsy thought that there was no more vulgar ambition than to possess bedrooms by the hundred. They were on top of a hill as they spoke. It was night. The mountains rose around them. When the whole earth is ours. Looked at from the gypsy point of view, a duke, Orlando understood, was nothing but a profiteer or robber, who snatched land and money from people who rated these things of little worth, and could think of nothing better to do than build three hundred and sixty-five bedrooms, when one was enough, and none was even better than one. She could not deny that her ancestors had accumulated field after field, house after house, honour after honour. Yet had none of them been saints or heroes, or great benefactors of the human race. Nor could she counter the argument. Rustam was too much of a gentleman to press it, but she understood that any man who did now what her ancestors had done three or four hundred years ago would be denounced, and by her own family most loudly, for a vulgar upstart, an adventurer, a nouveau riche. She sought to answer such arguments by the familiar, if oblique, method of finding the gypsy life itself rude and barbarous, and so, in a short time, much bad blood was bred between them. Indeed, such differences of opinion are enough to cause bloodshed and revolution. Towns have been sacked for less, and a million martyrs have suffered at the stake, rather than yield an inch upon any of the points here debated. No passion is stronger in the breast of man than the desire to make others believe as he believes. Nothing so cuts at the root of his happiness and fills him with rage as the sense that another rates low what he prizes high. Whigs and Tories, Liberal Party and Labour Party, for what do they battle except their own prestige? It is not love of truth, but desire to prevail, that sets quarter against quarter, and makes parish desire the downfall of parish. Each seeks peace of mind and subserviency, rather than the triumph of truth and the exaltation of virtue. But these moralities belong, and should be left to, the historian, since they are as dull as ditch-water. Four hundred and seventy-six bedrooms mean nothing to them," sighed Orlando. "'She prefers a sunset to a flock of goats,' said the gypsies. What was to be done, Orlando could not think. To leave the gypsies and become once more an ambassador seemed to her intolerable but it was equally impossible to remain for ever where there was neither ink nor writing-paper, neither reverence for the Talbots nor respect for a multiplicity of bedrooms. So she was thinking, one fine morning, on the slopes of Mount Athos, when minding her goats. And then nature, in whom she trusted, either played her a trick or worked a miracle. Again, opinions differ too much for it to be possible to say which. Orlando was gazing rather disconsolately at the steep hillside in front of her. It was now midsummer, and if we must compare the landscape to anything, it would have been to a dry bone, to a sheep's skeleton, 
to a gigantic skull picked white by a thousand vultures. The heat was intense, and the little fig-tree under which Orlando lay only served to print patterns of fig-leaves upon her light burnous. Suddenly a shadow, though there was nothing to cast a shadow, appeared on the bald mountain-side opposite. It deepened quickly, and soon a green hollow showed where there had been barren rock before. As she looked, the hollow deepened and widened, and a great park-like space opened in the flank of the hill. Within she could see an undulating and grassy lawn, she could see oak-trees dotted here and there, she could see the thrushes hopping among the branches. She could see the deer stepping delicately from shade to shade, and could even hear the hum of insects and the gentle sighs and shivers of a summer's day in England. After she had gazed entranced for some time, snow began falling. Soon the whole landscape was covered, and marked with violet shadows instead of yellow sunlight. Now she saw heavy carts coming along the roads, laden with tree-trunks, which they were taking, she knew, to be sawn for firewood, and then appeared the roofs and belfries and towers and courtyards of her own home. The snow was falling steadily, and she could now hear the slither and flop which it made as it slid down the roof and fell to the ground. The smoke went up from a thousand chimneys. All was so clear and minute that she could see a door pecking for worms in the snow. Then, gradually, the violet shades deepened and closed over the carts and the lawns and the great house itself. All was swallowed up. Now there was nothing left of the grassy hollow, and instead of the green lawns was only the blazing hillside which a thousand vultures seemed to have picked bare. At this she burst into a passion of tears, and striding back to the gypsies' camp, told them that she must sail for England the very next day. It was happy for her that she did so. Already the young men had plotted her death. Honour, they said, demanded it, for she did not think as they did. Yet they would have been sorry to cut her throat, and welcomed the news of her departure. An English merchant-ship, as luck would have it, was already under sail in the harbour about to return to England, and Orlando, by breaking off another pearl from her necklace, not only paid her passage, but had some banknotes left over in her wallet. These she would have liked to present to the gypsies, but they despised wealth, she knew, and she had to content herself with embraces which on her part were sincere. End of section 8、section、9 of Orlando by Virginia Woolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Chapter 4, Part 1. With some of the guineas left from the sale of the tenth pearl on her string, Orlando bought herself a complete outfit of such clothes as women then wore, and it was in the dress of a young Englishwoman of rank that she now sat on the deck of the enamoured lady. It is a strange fact, but a true one, that up to this moment she had scarcely given her sex a thought. Perhaps the Turkish trousers which she had hitherto worn had done something to distract her thoughts, and the gipsy women, except in one or two important particulars, 
differ very little from the gypsy men. At any rate, it was not until she felt the coil of skirts about her legs, and the captain offered, with the greatest politeness, to have an awning spread for her on deck, that she realised with a start the penalties and the privileges of her position. But that start was not of the kind that might have been expected. It was not caused, that is to say, simply and solely by the thought of her chastity, and how she could preserve it. In normal circumstances a lovely young woman alone would have thought of nothing else. The whole edifice of female government is based on that foundation-stone, chastity as their jewel, their centrepiece, which they run mad to protect, and die when ravished of. But if one has been a man for thirty years or so, and an ambassador into the bargain, if one has held a queen in one's arms, and one or two other ladies, if report be true, of less exalted rank, if one has married a Rosina Pepita, and so on, one does not perhaps give such a very great start about that. Orlando's start was of a very complicated kind, and not to be summed up in a trice. Nobody, indeed, ever accused her of being one of those quick wits who run to the end of things in a minute. It took her the entire length of the voyage to moralise out the meaning of her start, and so, at her own pace, we will follow her. Lord, she thought, when she had recovered from her start, stretching herself out at length under her awning, this is a pleasant, lazy way of life, to be sure. But, she thought, giving her legs a kick, these skirts are plaguy things to have about one's heels. Yet the stuff, flowered padua soy, is the loveliest in the world. Never have I seen my own skin. Here she laid her hand on her knee look to such advantage as now. Could I, however, leap overboard and swim in clothes like these? No. Therefore I should have to trust to the protection of a blue jacket. Do I object to that? Now do I?" she wondered, here encountering the first knot in the smooth skein of her argument. Dinner came before she had untied it, and then it was the captain himself, Captain Nicholas Benedict Bartolus a sea-captain of distinguished aspect, who did it for her as he helped her to a slice of corned beef. "'A little of the fat, ma'am?' he asked. "'Let me cut you just the tiniest little slice the size of your finger-nail.' At those words a delicious tremor ran through her frame. Birds sang, the torrents rushed. It recalled the feeling of indescribable pleasure with which she had first seen Sasha hundreds of years ago. Then she had pursued— now she fled. Which is the greater ecstasy, the man's or the woman's? And are they not, perhaps, the same? No, she thought, this is the most delicious, thanking the captain but refusing, to refuse and see him frown. Well, she would, if he wished it, have the very thinnest, smallest sliver in the world. This was the most delicious of all to yield and see him smile. For nothing, she thought, regaining her couch on deck, and continuing the argument, is more heavenly than to resist and to yield, to yield and resist. Surely it throws the spirit into such a rapture as nothing else can. So that I'm not sure, she continued, that I won't throw myself overboard for the mere pleasure of being rescued by a blue jacket after all. 
It must be remembered that she was like a child entering into a possession of a pleasance or toy cupboard. Her arguments would not commend themselves to mature women, who have had the run of it all their lives. But what used we young fellows in the cockpit of the Mary Rose to say about a woman who threw herself overboard for the pleasure of being rescued by a blue jacket? She said. We had a word for them. Ah, I have it. But we must omit that word. It was disrespectful in the extreme, and passing strange on a lady's lips. Lord, Lord! she cried again at the conclusion of her thoughts. Must I then begin to respect the opinion of the other sex, however monstrous I think it? If I wear skirts, if I can't swim, if I have to be rescued by a blue jacket, by God! she cried. I must! Upon which a gloom fell over her. Candid by nature, and averse to all kinds of equivocation, to tell lies bored her. It seemed to her a roundabout way of going to work. Yet, she reflected, the flowered padua soy, the pleasure of being rescued by a blue jacket, if these were only to be obtained by roundabout ways, roundabout one must go, she supposed. She remembered how, as a young man, she had insisted that women must be obedient, chaste, scented, and exquisitely apparelled. Now I shall have to pay in my own person for those desires, she reflected. For women are not, judging by my own short experience of the sex, obedient, chaste, scented, and exquisitely apparelled by nature. They can only attain these graces, without which they may enjoy none of the delights of life, by the most tedious discipline. There's the hairdressing, she thought. That alone will take an hour of my morning. There's looking in the looking-glass, another hour. There's staying and lacing. There's washing and powdering. There's changing from silk to lace and from lace to paduasoy. There's being chased year in, year out." Here she tossed her foot impatiently, and showed an inch or two of calf. A sailor, on the mast, who happened to look down at the moment, started so violently that he missed his footing, and only saved himself by the skin of his teeth. If the sight of my ankles means death to an honest fellow, who, no doubt, has a wife and family to support, I must, in all humanity, keep them covered," Orlando thought. Yet her legs were among her chiefest beauties. And she fell to thinking what an odd pass we have come to, when all a woman's beauty has to be kept covered, lest a sailor may fall from a masthead. "'A pox on them!' she said, realising for the first time what, in other circumstances, she would have been taught as a child that is to say, the sacred responsibilities of womanhood. And that's the last oath I shall ever be able to swear, she thought, once I set foot on English soil. And I shall never be able to crack a man over the head, or tell him he lies in his teeth, or draw my sword and run him through the body, or sit among my peers, or wear a coronet, or walk in procession, or sentence a man to death, or lead an army or prance down Whitehall on a charger, or wear seventy-two different medals on my breast. All I can do, once I set foot on English soil, is to pour out tea and ask my lords how they like it. Do you take sugar? Do you take cream?" And, mincing out the words, she was horrified to perceive how low an opinion she was forming of the other sex, the manly, 
to which it had once been her pride to belong. To fall from a masthead, she thought, because you see a woman's ankles, to dress up like a Guy Fawkes and parade the streets, so that women may praise you, to deny a woman teaching lest she may laugh at you, to be the slave of the frailest chit in petticoats, and yet to go about as if you were the lords of creation. Heavens, she thought, what fools they make of us! What fools we are! And here it would seem, from some ambiguity in her terms, that she was censuring both sexes equally, as if she belonged to neither. And indeed, for the time being, she seemed to vacillate. She was man, she was woman, she knew the secrets, shared the weaknesses of each. It was a most bewildering and whirligig state of mind to be in. The comforts of ignorance seemed utterly denied her. She was a feather blown on the gale. Thus it is no great wonder, as she pitted one sex against the other, and found each alternately full of the most deplorable infirmities, and was not sure to which she belonged. It was no great wonder that she was about to cry out that she would return to Turkey and become a gypsy again, when the anchor fell with a great splash into the sea, the sails came tumbling on deck, and she perceived—so sunk had she been in thought that she had seen nothing for several days—that the ship was anchored off the coast of Italy. The captain at once sent to ask the honour of her company ashore with him in the long-boat. When she returned the next morning, she stretched herself on her couch under the awning, and arranged her draperies with the greatest decorum about her ankles. "'Ignorant and poor as we are compared with the other sex,' she thought, continuing the sentence which she had left unfinished the other day. "'Armed with every weapon as they are, while they debar us even from a knowledge of the alphabet.' And from these opening words it is plain that something had happened during the night to give her a push towards the female sex, for she was speaking more as a woman speaks than as a man, though with a sort of content after all. Still, they fall from the masthead. Here she gave a great yawn and fell asleep. When she woke, the ship was sailing before a fair breeze, so near the shore that towns on the cliff's edge seemed only kept from slipping into the water by the interposition of some great rock or the twisted roots of some ancient olive-tree. The scent of oranges, wafted from a million trees heavy with the fruit, reached her on deck. A score of blue dolphins, twisting their tails, leapt high now and again into the air. Stretching her arms out—arms, she had learnt already, have no such fatal effects as legs—she thanked heaven that she was not prancing down Whitehall on a war-horse, nor even sentencing a man to death. Better is it, she thought, to be clothed with poverty and ignorance, which are the dark garments of the female sex. Better to leave the rule and discipline of the world to others. Better be quit of martial ambition, the love of power, and all the other manly desires. If so, one can more fully enjoy the most exalted raptures known to the human spirit. Which are, she said aloud, as her habit was when deeply moved, contemplation, solitude, love. Praise God that I'm a woman, she cried and was about to run into extreme folly—than which none is more distressing in woman or man either—of being proud of her sex, when she passed over the singular word which, 
for all we can do to put it in its place, has crept in at the end of the last sentence. Love. Love, said Orlando. Instantly, such is its impetuosity, love took human shape. Such is its pride. For where other thoughts are content to remain abstract, none will satisfy this one but to put on flesh and blood, mantilla and petticoats, hose and jerkin. And as all Orlando's loves had been women, now, through the culpable laggardry of the human frame to adapt itself to convention, though she herself was a woman, it was still a woman she loved. And if the consciousness of being the same sex had any effect at all, it was to quicken and deepen those feelings which she had had as a man. For now a thousand hints and mysteries became plain to her, that were then dark. Now the obscurity, which divides the sexes and lets linger innumerable impurities in its gloom, was removed. And if there is anything in what the poet says about truth and beauty, this affection gained in beauty what it lost in falsity. At last, she cried, she knew Sasha as she was, and in the ardour of this discovery, and in the pursuit of all those treasures which were now revealed, she was so rapt and enchanted, that it was as if a cannon-ball had exploded at her ear, when a man's voice said, "'Permit me, madam.' A man's hand raised her to her feet, and the fingers of a man with a three-masted sailing-ship tattooed on the middle finger, pointed to the horizon. "'The cliffs of England, ma'am,' said the captain, and he raised the hand which had pointed at the sky to the salute. Orlando now gave a second start, even more violent than the first. "'Christ Jesus!' she cried. Happily, the sight of her native land after long absence excused both start and exclamation, or she would have been hard put to it to explain to Captain Bartolus the raging and conflicting emotions which now boiled within her. How tell him that she, who now trembled on his arm, had been a duke and an ambassador? How explain to him that she, who had been lapped like a lily in folds of paduasoy, had hacked heads off, and lain with loose women among treasure-sacks in the holds of pirate-ships on summer nights, when the tulips were abloom and the bees buzzing off whopping old stairs. Not even to herself could she explain the giant start she gave, as the resolute right hand of the sea-captain indicated the cliffs of the British Isles. "'To refuse and to yield,' she murmured, how delightful! To pursue and to conquer, how august! To perceive and to reason, how sublime! Not one of these words, so coupled together, seemed to her wrong. Nevertheless, as the chalky cliffs loomed nearer, she felt culpable, dishonoured, unchaste, which, for one who had never given the matter a thought, was strange. Closer and closer they drew, till the samphire-gatherers, hanging halfway down the cliff, were plain to the naked eye. And watching them, she felt, scampering up and down within her, like some derisive ghost who in another instant will pick up her skirts and flaunt out of sight, Sasha the lost, Sasha the memory, whose reality she had proved just now so surprisingly. Sasha, she felt, mopping and mowing and making all sorts of disrespectful gestures towards the cliffs and the samphire-gatherers. 
and when the sailors began chanting, so good-bye and adieu to you, ladies of Spain, the words echoed in Orlando's sad heart, and she felt that however much landing there meant comfort, meant opulence, meant consequence and state, for she would doubtless pick up some noble prince and reign, his consort, over half Yorkshire. Still, if it meant conventionality, meant slavery, meant deceit, meant denying her love, fettering her limbs, pursing her lips and restraining her tongue, then she would turn about with the ship and set sail once more for the gypsies. Among the hurry of these thoughts, however, there soon rose, like a dome of smooth white marble, something which, whether fact or fancy, was so impressive to her fevered imagination that she settled upon it, as one has seen a swarm of vibrant dragonflies alight, with apparent satisfaction, upon the glass bell which shelters some tender vegetable. The form of it, by the hazard of fancy, recalled that earliest, most persistent memory—the man with the big forehead in Twitchett's sitting-room, the man who sat writing, or rather looking, but certainly not at her, for he never seemed to see her poised there in all her finery, lovely boy though she must have been, she could not deny it. And whenever she thought of him, the thought spread round it, like the risen moon on turbulent waters, a sheet of silver calm. Now her hand went to her bosom—the other was still in the captain's keeping—where the pages of her poem were hidden safe. It might have been a talisman that she kept there. The distraction of sex, which hers was, and what it meant, subsided. She thought now only of the glory of poetry, and the great lines of Marlowe, Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, Milton, began booming and reverberating, as if a golden clapper beat against a golden bell in the cathedral-tower which was her mind. The truth was that the image of the marble dome, which her eyes had first discovered so faintly that it suggested a poet's forehead, and thus started a flock of irrelevant ideas, was no figment, but a reality. And as the ship advanced down the Thames before a favouring gale, the image with all its associations gave place to the truth, and revealed it as nothing more, and nothing less, than the dome of a vast cathedral rising among a fretwork of white spires. St. Paul's," said Captain Bartolus, who stood by her side. The Tower of London," he continued, Greenwich Hospital, erected in memory of Queen Mary by her husband, His Late Majesty William the Third. Westminster Abbey, the Houses of Parliament. As he spoke, each of these famous buildings rose to view. It was a fine September morning. A myriad of little watercraft plied from bank to bank. Rarely has a gayer or more interesting spectacle presented itself to the gaze of a returned traveller. Orlando hung over the prow, absorbed in wonder. Her eyes had been used too long to savages and nature, not to be entranced by these urban glories. That, then, was the dome of St. Paul's, which Mr. Wren had built during her absence. Nearby. A shock of golden hair burst from a pillar. Captain Bartolus was at her side to inform her that that was the monument. There had been a plague and a fire during her absence, he said. Do what she could to restrain them, the tears came to her eyes, until, remembering that it is becoming in a woman to weep, 
she let them flow. Here, she thought, had been the great carnival. Here, where the waves slapped briskly, had stood the royal pavilion. Here she had first met Sasha. About here, she looked down into the sparkling waters, one had been used to see the frozen bumboat woman with her apples on her lap. All that splendour and corruption was gone. Gone too was the dark night, the monstrous downpour, the violent surges of the flood. Here, where yellow icebergs had raced, circling, with a crew of terror-stricken wretches on top, a covey of swans floated, orgulous, undulant, superb. London itself had completely changed since she had last seen it. Then, she remembered, it had been a huddle of little black beetle-browed houses. The heads of rebels had grinned on pikes at Temple Bar. The cobbled pavements had reeked of garbage and ordure. Now, as the ship sailed past Wapping, she caught glimpses of broad and orderly thoroughfares. Stately coaches drawn by teams of well-fed horses, stood at the doors of houses whose bow-windows, whose plate-glass, whose polished knockers, testified to the wealth and modest dignity of the dwellers within. Ladies in flowered silk—she put the captain's glass to her eye—walked on raised footpaths. Citizens in broidered coats took snuff at street-corners under lamp-posts. She caught sight of a variety of painted signs swinging in the breeze, and could form a rapid notion from what was painted on them, of the tobacco, of the stuff, of the silk, of the gold, of the silverware, of the gloves, of the perfumes, and of a thousand other articles which were sold within. Nor could she do more, as the ship sailed to its anchorage by London Bridge, than glance at coffee-house windows, where, on balconies, since the weather was fine, a great number of decent citizens sat at ease, with china dishes in front of them, clay pipes by their sides, while one among them read from a news-sheet, and was frequently interrupted by the laughter or the comments of the others. Were these taverns? Were these wits? Were these poets? she asked of Captain Bartolus, who obligingly informed her that even now, if she turned her head a little to the left and looked along the line of his first finger, so, they were passing the cocoa-tree, where—yes, there he was, one might see Mr. Addison taking his coffee, the other two gentlemen—there, ma'am, a little to the right of the lamp-post, one of them humped, t'other much the same as you or me—were Mr. Dryden and Mr. Pope. "'Sad dogs,' said the captain, by which he meant that they were papists, but men of parts none the less," he added hurrying aft to superintend the arrangements for landing. The captain must have been mistaken, as a reference to any textbook of literature will show, but the mistake was a kindly one, and so we let it stand. Addison, Dryden, Pope, Orlando repeated, as if the words were an incantation. For one moment she saw the high mountains above Brusa. The next she had set her foot upon her native shore. End of section 9。section 10 of Orlando by Virginia Woolf。this is a LibriVox recording。all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Chapter 4, Part 2 But now Orlando was to learn how little the most tempestuous flutter of excitement avails against the iron countenance of the law, how harder than the stones of London Bridge it is, and than the lips of a cannon more severe. No sooner had she returned to her home in Blackfriars than she was made aware, by a succession of Bow Street runners and other grave emissaries from the law courts, that she was a party to three major suits which had been preferred against her during her absence, as well as innumerable minor litigations, some arising out of, others depending on them. The chief charges against her were, one, that she was dead, and therefore could not hold any property whatsoever, two, that she was a woman, which amounts to much the same thing, three, that she was an English duke, who had married one Rosina Pepita, a dancer, and had had by her three sons, which sons, now declaring that their father was deceased, claimed that all his property descended to them. Such grave charges as these would, of course, take time and money to dispose of. All her estates were put in chancery, and her titles pronounced in abeyance while the suits were under litigation. Thus it was in a highly ambiguous condition, uncertain whether she was alive or dead, man or woman, duke or nonentity, that she posted down to her country seat, where, pending the legal judgment, she had the law's permission to reside in a state of incognito, or incognita, as the case may turn out to be. It was a fine evening in December when she arrived, and the snow was falling, and the violet shadows were slanting, much as she had seen them from the hilltop at Brusa. The great house lay, more like a town than a house, brown and blue, rose and purple in the snow, with all its chimneys smoking busily, as if inspired with a life of their own. She could not restrain a cry as she saw it there, tranquil and massive, couched upon the meadows. As the yellow coach entered the park, and came bowling along the drive between the trees, the red deer raised their heads, as if expectantly, and it was observed that, instead of showing the timidity natural to their kind, they followed the coach, and stood about the courtyard when it drew up. Some tossed their antlers, others poured the ground, as the step was let down and Orlando alighted. One, it is said, actually knelt in the snow before her. She had not time to reach her hand towards the knocker, before both wings of the great door were flung open, and there, with lights and torches held above their heads, were Mrs. Grimstitch, Mr. Dupper, and a whole retinue of servants come to greet her. But the orderly procession was interrupted first by the impetuosity of Canute, the elk-hound, who threw himself with such ardour upon his mistress that he almost knocked her to the ground. Next, by the agitation of Mrs. Grimstitch, who, making as if to curtsy, was overcome with emotion, and could do no more than gasp, "'My lord! My lady! My lady! My lord!' until Orlando comforted her with a hearty kiss upon both her cheeks. After that Mr. Dupper began to read from a parchment, but the dogs barking, the huntsmen winding their horns, and the stags, who had come into the courtyard in the confusion, baying the moon, not much progress was made, and the company dispersed within after crowding about their mistress, 
and testifying in every way to their great joy at her return. No one showed an instant suspicion that Orlando was not the Orlando they had known. If any doubt there was in the human mind, the action of the deer and the dogs would have been enough to dispel it, for the dumb creatures, as is well known, are far better judges both of identity and character than we are. Moreover, said Mrs. Grimstitch, over her dish of china tea, to Mr. Dupper that night, if her lord was a lady now, she had never seen a lovelier one, nor was there a penny-piece to choose between them. One was as well favoured as the other. They were as alike as two peaches on one branch. Which, said Mrs. Grimstitch, becoming confidential, she had always had her suspicions. Here she nodded her head very mysteriously. Which it was no surprise to her. Here she nodded her head very knowingly. And for her part, a very great comfort. For what with the towels wanting mending, and the curtains in the chaplain's parlour being moth-eaten round the fringes, it was time they had a mistress among them. "'And some little masters and mistresses to come after her,' Mr. Dupper added, being privileged by virtue of his holy office to speak his mind on such delicate matters as these. So, while the old servants gossiped in the servants' hall, Orlando took a silver candle in her hand, and roamed once more through the halls, the galleries, the courts, the bedrooms, saw loom down at her again the dark visage of this Lord Keeper, that Lord Chamberlain, among her ancestors, sat now in this chair of state, now reclined on that canopy of delight, observed the arras, how it swayed, watched the huntsman riding and Daphne flying, bathed her hand, as she had loved to do as a child, in the yellow pool of light which the moonlight made falling through the heraldic leopard in the window, slid along the polished planks of the gallery, the other side of which was rough timber, touched this silk, that satin, fancied the carved dolphins swam, brushed her hair with King James's silver brush, buried her face in the potpourri, which was made as the Conqueror had taught them many hundred years ago, and from the same roses, looked at the garden and imagined the sleeping crocuses, the dormant dahlias, saw the frail nymphs gleaming white in the snow, and the great yew-hedges, thick as a house, black behind them, saw the orangeries and the giant meddlers. All this she saw, and each sight and sound, rudely as we write it down, filled her heart with such a lust and balm of joy, that at length, tired out, she entered the chapel, and sank into the old red armchair, in which her ancestors used to hear service. There she lit a cheroot. "'Twas a habit she had brought back from the East, and opened the prayer-book. It was a little book bound in velvet, stitched with gold, which had been held by Mary Queen of Scots on the scaffold, and the eye of faith could detect a brownish stain, said to be made of a drop of the royal blood. But what pious thoughts it roused in Orlando, what evil passions it soothed to sleep, who dare say, seeing that, of all communions, this with the deity is the most inscrutable. Novelist, poet, historian, all falter with their hand on that door. Nor does the believer himself enlighten us, for is he more ready to die than other people, or more eager to share his goods? Does he not keep as many maids and carriage-horses as the rest? 
and yet, with it all, holds a faith, he says, which should make goods of vanity and death desirable. In the Queen's prayer-book, along with the bloodstain, was also a lock of hair and a crumb of pastry. Orlando now added to these keepsakes a flake of tobacco, and so, reading and smoking, was moved by the humane jumble of them all, the hair, the pastry, the bloodstain, the tobacco, to such a mood of contemplation as gave her a reverent air suitable in circumstances, though she had, it is said, no traffic with the usual god. Nothing, however, can be more arrogant, though nothing is commoner, than to assume that of gods there is only one, and of religions none but the speakers. Orlando, it seemed, had a faith of her own. With all the religious ardour in the world, she now reflected upon her sins and the imperfections that had crept into her spiritual state. The letter S, she reflected, is the serpent in the poet's Eden. Do what she would, there were still too many of these sinful reptiles in the first stanzas of the oak-tree. But S was nothing, in her opinion, compared with the termination ing. The present participle is a devil himself, she thought, now that we are in the place for believing in devils. To evade such temptations is the first duty of the poet, she concluded, for as the ear is the antechamber to the soul, poetry can adulterate and destroy more surely than lust or gunpowder. The poet's, then, is the highest office of all, she continued. His words reach where others fall short. A silly song of Shakespeare's has done more for the poor and the wicked than all the preachers and philanthropists in the world. No time, no devotion, can be too great, therefore, which makes the vehicle of our message less distorting. We must shape our words till they are the thinnest integument for our thoughts. Thoughts are divine, etc. Thus it is obvious that she was back in the confines of her own religion, which time had only strengthened in her absence, and was rapidly acquiring the intolerance of belief. "'I am growing up,' she thought, taking her taper at last. "'I am losing some illusions,' she said, shutting Queen Mary's book, perhaps to acquire others. And she descended among the tombs where the bones of her ancestors lay. But even the bones of her ancestors—Sir Miles, Sir Gervais, and the rest— had lost something of their sanctity, since Rustam el-Sadi had waved his hand that night in the Asian mountains. Somehow the fact that only three or four hundred years ago these skeletons had been men with their way to make in the world like any modern upstart, and that they had made it by acquiring houses and offices, garters and ribbons, as any other upstart does, while poets, perhaps, and men of great mind and breeding, had preferred the quietude of the country, for which choice they paid the penalty by extreme poverty, and now hawked broadsheets in the strand, or herded sheep in the fields, filled her with remorse. She thought of the Egyptian pyramids, and what bones lie beneath them, as she stood in the crypt, and the vast empty hills which lie above the sea of Mamara seemed, for the moment, a finer dwelling-place than this many-roomed mansion in which no bed lacked its quilt, and no silver dish its silver cover. "'I am growing up,' she thought, taking her taper. "'I am losing my illusions, perhaps to acquire new ones. 
and she paced down the long gallery to her bedroom. It was a disagreeable process, and a troublesome. But it was interesting, amazingly, she thought, stretching her legs out to her log fire, for no sailor was present, and she reviewed, as if it were an avenue of great edifices, the progress of her own self along her own past. How she had loved sound when she was a boy, and thought the volley of tumultuous syllables from the lips the finest of all poetry. Then, it was the effect of Sasha and her disillusionment, perhaps, into this high frenzy was let fall some black drop which turned her rhapsody into sluggishness. Slowly there had opened within her something intricate and many-chambered, which one must take a torch to explore, in prose not verse, and she remembered how passionately she had studied that doctor at Norwich, Brown, whose book was at her hand there. She had formed here in solitude after her affair with Green, or tried to form, for heaven knows these growths are age-long in coming, a spirit capable of resistance. "'I will write,' she had said, "'what I enjoy writing.' And so had scratched out twenty-six volumes. Yet still, for all her travels and adventures, and profound thinkings and turnings this way and that, she was only in process of fabrication. What the future might bring, heaven only knew. Change was incessant, and change perhaps would never cease. High battlements of thought, habits that had seemed durable as stone, went down like shadows at the touch of another mind, and left a naked sky and fresh stars twinkling in it. Here she went to the window, and in spite of the cold could not help unlatching it. She leant out into the damp night air. She heard a fox bark in the woods, and the clutter of a pheasant trailing through the branches. She heard the snow slither and flop from the roof to the ground. "'By my life!' she exclaimed. "'This is a thousand times better than Turkey!' "'Rustam!' she cried, as if she were arguing with the gypsy. And in this new power of bearing an argument in mind, and continuing it with someone who was not there to contradict, she showed again the development of her soul. "'You were wrong. This is better than Turkey. Hair, pastry, tobacco, of what odds and ends are we compounded?' she said, thinking of Queen Mary's prayer-book. "'What a phantasmagoria the mind is and meeting-place of dissemblables! At one moment we deplore our birth and state, and aspire to an ascetic exaltation. The next we are overcome by the smell of some old garden path, and weep to hear the thrushes sing. And so, bewildered as usual by the multitude of things which call for explanation, and imprint their message, without leaving any hint as to their meaning, she threw her cheroot out of the window, and went to bed. Next morning, in pursuance of these thoughts, she had out her pen and paper, and started afresh upon the oak-tree for to have ink and paper in plenty, when one has made do with berries and margins, is a delight not to be conceived. Thus she was now striking out a phrase in the depths of despair, now in the heights of ecstasy writing one in, when a shadow darkened the page. She hastily hid her manuscript. As her window gave on to the most central of the courts, as she had given orders that she would see no one, 
as she knew no one, and was herself legally unknown, she was first surprised at the shadow, then indignant at it. Then, when she looked up and saw what caused it, overcome with merriment. For it was a familiar shadow, a grotesque shadow, the shadow of no lesser personage than the Archduchess Harriet Griselda of Finster Arhorn and Skander Opboom in the Romanian territory. She was loping across the court in her old black riding-habit and mantle as before. Not a hair of her head was changed. This, then, was the woman who had chased her from England. This was the eerie of that obscene vulture, this the fatal fowl herself. At the thought that she had fled all the way to Turkey to avoid her seductions, now become excessively flat, Orlando laughed aloud. There was something inexpressibly comic in the sight. She resembled, as Orlando had thought before, nothing so much as a monstrous hair. She had the staring eyes, the lank cheeks, the high headdress of that animal. She stopped now, much as a hare sits erect in the corn when thinking itself unobserved, and stared at Orlando, who stared back at her from the window. After they had stared like this for a certain time, there was nothing for it but to ask her in, and soon the two ladies were exchanging compliments, while the Archduchess struck the snow from her mantle. "'A plague on women,' said Orlando to herself, going to the cupboard to fetch a glass of wine. They never leave one a moment's peace. A more ferreting, inquisiting, busybodying set of people don't exist. It was to escape this maypole that I left England, and now—here she turned to present the Archduchess with the salver, and behold, in her place stood a tall gentleman in black. A heap of clothes lay in the fender. She was alone with a man. Recalled thus suddenly to a consciousness of her sex, which she had completely forgotten, and of his, which was now remote enough to be equally upsetting, Orlando felt seized with faintness. "'La!' she cried, putting her hand to her side. "'How you frighten me!' "'Gentle creature!' cried the Archduchess, falling on one knee, and at the same time pressing a cordial to Orlando's lips. "'Forgive me for the deceit I have practised on you.' Orlando sipped the wine and the Archduke knelt and kissed her hand. In short, they acted the parts of man and woman for ten minutes with great vigour, and then fell into natural discourse. The Archduchess—but she must in future be known as the Archduke—told his story, that he was a man and always had been one, that he had seen a portrait of Orlando and fallen hopelessly in love with him, that, to compass his ends, he had dressed as a woman and lodged at the baker's shop, that he was desolated when he fled to Turkey, that he had heard of her change and hastened to offer his services—here he teed and heed intolerably. For to him, said the Archduke Harry, she was and ever would be the pink, the pearl, the perfection of her sex. The three peas would have been more persuasive if they had not been interspersed with tee-hees and haw-haws of the strangest kind. "'If this is love,' said Orlando to herself, looking at the Archduke on the other side of the fender, and now from the woman's point of view, there is something highly ridiculous about it." Falling on his knees, the Archduke Harry made the most passionate declaration of his suit. 
he told her that he had something like twenty million ducats in a strong-box at his castle. He had more acres than any nobleman in England. The shooting was excellent, he could promise her a mixed bag of ptarmigan and grouse, such as no English more, or Scotch either, could rival. True, the pheasants had suffered from the gape in his absence, and the does had slipped their young, but that could be put right, and would be with her help, when they lived in Romania together. As he spoke, enormous tears formed in his rather prominent eyes, and ran down the sandy tracts of his long and lanky cheeks. That men cry as frequently and as unreasonably as women, Orlando knew from her own experience as a man, but she was beginning to be aware that women should be shocked when men display emotion in their presence, and so shocked she was. The Archduke apologised. He commanded himself sufficiently to say that he would leave her now, but would return on the following day for his answer. That was a Tuesday. He came on Wednesday, he came on Thursday, he came on Friday, and he came on Saturday. It is true that each visit began, continued or concluded, with a declaration of love, but in between there was much room for silence. They sat on either side of the fireplace, and sometimes the Archduke knocked over the fire-irons and Orlando picked them up again. Then the Archduke would bethink him how he had shot an elk in Sweden, and Orlando would ask, was it a very big elk? And the Archduke would say that it was not as big as the reindeer which he shot in Norway. And Orlando would ask, had he ever shot a tiger? And the Archduke would say he had shot an albatross. And Orlando would say, half hiding her yawn, was an albatross as big as an elephant? And the Archduke would say, something very sensible, no doubt, but Orlando heard it not, for she was looking at her writing-table, out of the window, at the door. Upon which the Archduke would say, I adore you, at the very same moment that Orlando said, Look, it's beginning to rain! At which they were both much embarrassed, and blushed scarlet, and could neither of them think what to say next. Indeed, Orlando was at her wit's end what to talk about, and had she not bethought her of a game called Fly Loo, at which great sums of money can be lost with very little expense of spirit, she would have had to marry him, she supposed, for how else to get rid of him she knew not. By this device, however, and it was a simple one, needing only three lumps of sugar and a sufficiency of flies, the embarrassment of conversation was overcome, and the necessity of marriage avoided. For now, the Archduke would bet her five hundred pounds to a tester, that a fly would settle on this lump and not that. Thus they would have occupation for a whole morning, watching the flies, who were naturally sluggish at this season, and often spent an hour or so circling round the ceiling, until at length some fine bluebottle made his choice, and the match was won. Many hundreds of pounds changed hands between them at this game, which the Archduke, who was a born gambler, swore was every bit as good as horse-racing, and vowed he could play at for ever. But Orlando soon began to weary. "'What's the good of being a fine young woman in the prime of life?' she asked, "'if I have to pass all my mornings watching bluebottles with an archduke?' She began to detest the sight of sugar. Flies made her dizzy. Some way out of the difficulty there must be, she supposed, but she was still awkward in the arts of her sex, and as she could no longer knock a man over the head or run him through the body with a rapier, she could think of no better method than this. 
she caught a bluebottle, gently pressed the life out of it—it was half dead already, or her kindness for the dumb creatures would not have permitted it—and secured it by a drop of gum arabic to a lump of sugar. While the Archduke was gazing at the ceiling, she deftly substituted this lump for the one she had laid her money on, and crying, "'Lou! Lou!' declared that she had won her bet. Her reckoning was that the Archduke, with all his knowledge of sport and horse-racing, would detect the fraud, and, as to cheat at Lou is the most heinous of crimes, and men have been banished from the society of mankind to that of apes in the tropics for ever because of it, she calculated that he would be manly enough to refuse to have anything further to do with her. But she misjudged the simplicity of the amiable nobleman. He was no nice judge of flies. A dead fly looked to him much the same as a living one. She played the trick twenty times on him, and he paid her over seventeen thousand two hundred and fifty pounds, which is about forty thousand eight hundred and eighty-five pounds six shillings and eight pence of our own money, before Orlando cheated so grossly that even he could be deceived no longer. When he realised the truth at last, a painful scene ensued. The Archduke rose to his full height. He coloured scarlet. Tears rolled down his cheeks one by one. That she had won a fortune from him was nothing. She was welcome to it. That she had deceived him was something. It hurt him to think her capable of it. But that she had cheated at loo was everything. To love a woman who cheated at play was, he said, impossible. Here he broke down completely. Happily, he said, recovering slightly, there were no witnesses. She was, after all, only a woman, he said. In short, he was preparing in the chivalry of his heart to forgive her, and had bent to ask her pardon for the violence of his language, when she cut the matter short, as he stooped his proud head, by dropping a small toad between his skin and his shirt. In justice to her, it must be said that she would infinitely have preferred a rapier. Toads are clammy things to conceal about one's person a whole morning but if rapiers are forbidden, one must have recourse to toads. Moreover, toads and laughter between them sometimes do what cold steel cannot. She laughed. The Archduke blushed. She laughed. The Archduke cursed. She laughed. The Archduke slammed the door. "'Heaven be praised!' cried Orlando, still laughing. She heard the sound of chariot-wheels driven at a furious pace down the courtyard. She heard them rattle along the road. Fainter and fainter the sound became. Now it faded away altogether. "'I am alone,' said Orlando, aloud, since there was no one to hear. That silence is more profound after noise, still wants the confirmation of science but that loneliness is more apparent directly after one has been made love to, many women would take their oath. As the sound of the Archduke's chariot-wheels died away, Orlando felt drawing further from her and further from her an Archduke—she did not mind that—a fortune—she did not mind that—a title—she did not mind that—the safety and circumstance of married life—she did not mind that. But life she heard going from her, and a lover. Life and a lover, she murmured, and going to her writing-table she dipped her pen in the ink, and wrote, 
life and a lover a line which did not scan and made no sense with what went before something about the proper way of dipping sheep to avoid the scab reading it over she blushed and repeated life and a lover then laying her pen aside she went into her bedroom stood in front of her mirror and arranged her pearls about her neck then since pearls do not show to advantage against a morning gown of sprigged cotton she changed to a dove-grey taffeta thence to one of peach bloom thence to a wine-coloured brocade perhaps a dash of powder was needed and if her hair was disposed so about her brow it might become her then she slipped her feet into pointed slippers and drew an emerald ring upon her finger now she said when all was ready and lit the silver sconces on either side of the mirror what woman would not have kindled to see what orlando saw then burning in the snow for all about the looking-glass were snowy lawns and she was like a fire a burning bush and the candle-flames about her head were silver leaves or again the glass was green water and she a mermaid slung with pearls a siren in a cave singing so that oarsmen leant from their boats and fell down down to embrace her so dark so bright so hard so soft was she so astonishingly seductive that it was a thousand pities that there was no one there to put it in plain english and say outright damn it madam you are loveliness incarnate which was the truth even orlando who had no conceit of her person knew it for she smiled the involuntary smile which women smile when their own beauty which seems not their own forms like a drop falling or a fountain rising and confronts them all of a sudden in the glass this smile she smiled and then she listened for a moment and heard only the leaves blowing and the sparrows twittering and then she sighed life a lover and then she turned on her heel with extraordinary rapidity whipped her pearls from her neck stripped the satins from her back stood erect in the neat black silk knickerbockers of an ordinary nobleman and rang the bell when the servant came she told him to order a coach and six to be in readiness instantly she was summoned by urgent affairs to london within an hour of the archduke's departure off she drove End of section 10